out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is David Eastall, The C86 Show, and now part two of uh, the band Friends Again with Chris Thompson and also Paul McGeechie. And um, yes, part one, hopefully you've heard it. This is going to be the next part. It's normally the way it works, isn't it? Anyway, it's about Zoom and if you have a three-way conversation. You only have 40 minutes unless you've got a professional account. I'm not going to get a professional account. Well, not yet, anyway. Look, so um, after that exciting um, interlude, we have part two. Um, Anyway, look, there's a bit of me and then the band. Enjoy. It's a fascinating journey. Yeah, so look, we're getting into the, the, the kind of recording of the album. So where did you... Did you have all the material all set up and, you know, rehearsed before um, going into the studio? And which studio did you go to? Well, we did a lot. We had a lot of demos uh, that we did in Edinburgh at Palladium, as I mentioned. And then we went to various studios. I think the first one was the first one Wessex, Chris. Uh, I remember going down to Maison Rouge in Fulham where Wham! We're recording. Yeah, we've been in somewhere before. We, we went, went to Wessex. Was... I think it was Wessex, and we were in there for a few days. Yeah. We were in quite a few studios, and then we were in Maison Rouge, as you see, Red Bus, and then, but most of it was done in Rack. Rack, yeah, that was brilliant. I loved Rack. Right. Um, it's, and it's still going, isn't it? I mean, it's still, it's still going, yeah. I was there a couple of years ago. Cool, lots of figures in and out. And uh, yeah. I remember when we got there, it was. The other band that was in the other studio was, uh, what they call it in Scottish, Big Country. Uh, yeah. So Big Country, when we were in Studio 2, and we knew it was Big Country. The studios had wee portal do- windows in the doors, like wee portal windows. And as you walked in, you could see this head appearing and disappearing. And it was Bruce from... Like country bouncing up and down on a couch playing the guitar, and on the couch was crates and crates of tenants. <laughs> God, I said, yes, I'd forgotten how big, big. I thought big country were going to be um, much bigger than you two, actually. I, I was such a big fan of them at the time. I thought they were just amazing. Yeah. Another Scottish band signed to the same label as, as again. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Phonogram, there was so many Scottish bands signed to, to that one label through the 80s, you know, uh, Friends Again, Love and Money, Hipsway, Texas, Big Country, all signed to the same record label. And what's your the memory of recording the album? Is it generally good? For me it was. Yeah. <laughs> I think yeah. different people have different views. Uh, I, it was tough. It was, you know, the demos and so forth, we were quite prolific in demoing. Uh, we did quite a lot of experimentation, some of which was good, some of which wasn't. But the producer that we worked with, Bob Sargent, was really fastidious. Uh, and he was a massive Steely Dan fan. And he was a massive fan of the producer, Gary Katz. So he was a bit of a taskmaster. I mean, I, I look back on it quite fondly and I'm glad he was, because if he wasn't, I might not still be working in the music industry because he really made you work hard. So, for example, I would go back and we had a piano set up in the, the, the apartment we were staying in and I would go back and practice four or five hours 
to make sure I got on the next track the next day because I would be replaced otherwise, which was so <laughs> weird. So you had to learn and you had to learn quickly. Uh, but I, I think I would say, personally, I look back on it fondly, yeah. Yeah. I, I like making the record. It was tough at points, but I liked making it, and it was a good time. It was a very exciting yeah. time, living yeah. in London and making a record. You know what else? Yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. it was. I enjoyed because we were lucky. They, they put us up in a nice apartment just down in in Queensway, and we'd walk up a couple of miles up to the studio in St John's Wood, through the park or wherever. It was a lovely walk up. Nice part of London. Um, it was, yeah, it was very superb. It was, it was a strange mix. The only bits I didn't like was, really, you know, you were due to do your vocal. <laughs> but the high, once you'd actually got something down. So it was a strange mix. It, it was a bit like doing an exam or something. It was, there was a pressure. And, you, you know, I, I'm sure Paul was the same. But, you know, they weren't that comfortable. Young young musicians. And Bob, Bob was, was that. Yeah. I mean, James, yeah, could play, James could play eight hours a day and play everything. And Bob Sargent loved He's playing, yeah. uh, and you can hear that in the records. Chris and I had to maybe work a wee bit harder. Yeah. Because it's kind of interesting, yeah. the, the 80s was a kind of interesting time because it was so tribal and there was kind of tribes within tribes. And recently I got this book, which is by Sam Neill, which goes through, you know, like there's just about 20 different groups within the, the 80s, you know, from, you know, the goth to the new romantic to shoegazing and, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But on the, on the kind of music front, there was kind of the mainstream charts and then there was the indie charts and that felt very divided. But you've been on a major with a sort of Bob Sargent, were you feeling sort of pulled a little bit into like you need to have this top ten hit? Uh, that's a very good question, and that's probably the the pivot where the whole thing got a bit wobbly because I think there was a, a sort of a strand within within us, and maybe something Paul touched on earlier, but maybe James I think might have wanted out and out commercial success, but for us there was a sort of wanted to be a bit underground left left field. Bit more of a indie band in some ways, um, but with Bob Sargent coming on board and the record, the the chat from the A and R guy was very much. He heard the new Simple Mind single. The snare's massive. We need that snare, and it did. It didn't really relate to the track in question. You know, the the last thing this track needs is a vast kind of Lindrum snare. <laughs> but there was a lot of competing influences, and to Bob Sargent's credit, even though he's very much a Steely Dan. Little Feet, uh, the band, classic Dylan sort of guy, which suited a lot of what we were doing from the song side of it and some of the melodic side and, and James's guitar playing, what have you. Um, there, there was a lot of sort of conflicting tensions and one of those was ultimately, oh, we need a hit single. In fact, they kept delaying the album the process and that led to a lot of frustration within the ranks. We were just like, we've, we've done these songs, we've, we've done all the demoing extensively. And then the, the recording of the album in the big studios went on extensively, which was a lot of fun in many ways, but we were ready to get that record out six months or a year earlier. But the record company very much saw it as, well, hang on, we've got Haircut 100's producer on this record. The, you know, they were seeing it as a, you are the next Haircut 100 or something, which was the, I think the furthest from our mind. No, much as we you know, like them, but it, it wasn't where we were seeing ourselves. But yeah, there was a real, a real tension. And we were, I mean, we were touring all the time. We played 
Yeah, yeah. Jinx, you know, we were just two in the because I know quite a few indie bands who had the first album on a small label, then they kind of go to a major label, and then that's kind of like they realize that they just don't want to do it anymore. They, that's kind of the death of the band almost. And, and I did an interview bizarrely with Clive, who was in Doctor, Doctor and the Medics. And, um, you know, they would go in and just be in this band. And then they were part of this kind of record label that suddenly gets swallowed up and swallowed up again. Yeah. And suddenly Miles Copeland is the kind of the, the main man. And he's, and he's throwing one of those tantrums going, I want the fucking hit single. I can't hear a hit single. So they went, oh we'll do spirit in the sky and it's like you know it's like great yeah. you know, it's like oh no yeah. want, you know that's no, like, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. did you Hopefully, have yeah. that kind of pressure that you were also like you know this you need to come back with something else i think we did i mean yeah partly i think i think they felt we had a couple i think they felt state of art should have been a big hit and they i think they almost um it was really, it wasn't a thing <laughs> It was, yeah, sort of just about scraped into the top 50 or something. But, yeah, the, I don't recall that thing about, oh, the answer here is to do a cover version of... I think in fairness we split up before it got to that. Yeah, we were probably heading for that stage when... <laughs> I think <laughs> when the album came out, because we actually... Did we split before the album came out? I yeah, it was we, a close run thing. I think we technically might have done. I think we did. So I think if we'd continued, the pressures would have been more that way. But yeah. in saying that, Chris and I were talking about this recently, and you remember we bits and pieces when you pack, pack it together. Mm. And we had always, the programme to be on at the time, if it wasn't the Ogre Whistle Test, was the tube. Yes. And we tried very hard to get on the tube. And we finally got a place on the tube and we split up the day we get told. And I was saying to Chris, thinking about it, looking back on it, I was saying to Chris, why on earth did we not just play the show? Why did we not do it? And Chris reminded me that my now brother-in-law was managing the band and he was so pissed off that we split up that he cancelled the appearance on the tube, but it wasn't us. <laughs> so if we'd gone on to do the tube, we might not have split, or we might have, you know, had a bit more, but it was just one of those things. So we kind of, we, we drove the nail into a road coffin. as Naivety played his part. Yes. So did you have a moment where you all sat down, or did you just kind of realise it was over? That was... <laughs> um, I think the tensions have been creeping up a little bit over the recording of the album and I think James was getting increasingly frustrated and I think saw himself as he wanted to front something and really go for the commercial jugular um, and I understandable that he's a, he's a great singer as well as a guitarist he had the writing abilities and you know we weren't having a hit single he, he really wanted that Big commercial uh, breakthrough, and uh, so the tensions were were building, and it it was I suppose the final blow is a bit like breaking up with a girlfriend or something. You, you don't see it coming till the blow lands. But um, you know, when you look back and say, ah, right, the signs were there. But you know, sort of naively um, carrying on, just with no grand plan, just sort of stumbling from day to day, week to week. But it was James who took the initiative to say, no, this this is over. 
I'm starting something new. Yeah. Um, it was it was it was a quite an abrupt end, but we we that's the interesting area. We should have been if you you know five years more maturity in a collective mindset. We'd have gone okay. Let's strategically let's let's do the tube. Let's we're booked. Let's do the tube. You know. But yeah, it was all it was a bit messy. I think we tried to. In fact, we did try and pull off. We we did it a couple of shows we had booked with a view to let's not you know let's keep this under our hats do these shows and do the tube at the end of the month. But by the time we'd done the, the couple of shows, that's when, as Paul said, the uh, manager got wind of it all and just, just went mad, told the record company, told the tube, you know, this this band are no more. <laughs> they, are, they are a dead band. They're not <laughs> just resting. <laughs> you know, so, but, the bizarre, uh, yeah, was, but the bizarre thing, you both then sort of form bands that... That have a phenomenal output and and years of yeah. of, of work and success. Yeah. So how did that? I think we're feel? deep in. It probably goes right back to the description Paul gave of the, the outhouse years. We were just like, you know, we'd all we'd we'd really sort of set our stall out that we wanted to do music. We we put so much in and we we loved it. Um, there didn't really seem to be any question of draw, stopping it. I, I think I would speak for Paul as well. His love and money picked up directly from the friends again. You know, James had some songs, he, Candy Bar Express, notably, where you, it was like straight into the studio. Let's go. He, it was a man on a mission, and he, you know, you guys were yeah. really wanted to, to get moving. Yeah, I suppose we went straight into that. And I, I mean, there wasn't much thought in the sense of doing something else. One, I don't think any, none of us finished up. What we were studying, I was studying yeah, the job out in the second year to when we got a publishing deal and Chris and you both did the same. So we didn't have any formal, we hadn't gone career-wise or anything. And I think we just invested ourselves in it so much, we just didn't know anything else. We love Murray were very fortunate in the sense that we immediately re-signed back to Phonogram. Uh, Neil then very quickly left the band because he didn't feel that it was right for him. And mm-hmm. we got Bobby Patterson, who was engineer at Parkland Studios, an amazing bass player, to join. Uh, and it just, it could have seemed natural at the time, but as Chris is, is right to say, you know, James was very, uh, very focused on that, and uh, the Ian Arman was kind of, I suppose, they've invested in friends again, and you could see maybe some return from of money, I don't know. Yeah, and did it, not. and did you both feel because you were in different, the different bands, did it? Did you both feel kind of like happy where you landed and thought, actually, this is more what I want to do, and didn't regret the you know the band breaking up? Well, Love Money's an interesting thing because the first record is not a record I would really listen to, but and it falls into two different bits. So some of it is kind of not that songs like "You're Beautiful" that I wrote with James isn't that different, maybe from something we would have done in Friends again. Piano bass, and then you had big things like the Candle Bar Express. So we had two different things going on, and it wasn't necessarily going to be that way. But the record company, when they heard the Candle Bar and that kind of stuff, they really wanted to push that, you know. So, so that first album was a wee bit of a dichotomy. It was great. It was really good fun, and bits of it were stressful. It was good working with producers. Again, quite young doing that, and then the second Love and Money album, Strange Kind of Love, was where I think the band started getting a bit of a stronger identity yes that's that's and, and what about the bathers 
Yeah, well, I, again, it, quite lucky. I mean, I think initially the, the, the record company had the initial idea that they were just going to keep us all signed, which looking back was probably probably quite good. So no one had the shock of, of you know, the band breaking up and then being absolutely dropped from a, a record company. But as it played out, the I did some demos. I sort of maybe did half of what became the first album. And at that point, suddenly the tune changed from the A&R guy. And they, the record company just said, sensibly said, hang on, you know, let, let's put all our eggs in one basket here. You know, can't, we want to get a return on this. Candy Bar Express, what I was doing was much, much more kind of left field and not, no way as commercial. So the sensibly, but it given me enough of a, a kind of a head start, that I, the confidence that I could, do it on my own without a band. In fact, Green can help me on, on that first Bathers record, did some back and vocals and whatnot. And so there's a, a nice, there's an element of continuity for me as well. Um, same studio, John Turner at Palladium and the, the resident engineer, Keith. So I had to kind of say I wasn't completely out on my own. And very quickly, through some, a very, a diehard Friends Again fan, heard the demos and said, right, I've got to get, I've got to get a deal on this. And she, I thought, oh yeah, sure. But lo and behold, she, she took it round and she got, she got us a meeting with Go Discs. And it was, um, as he was known then, Porky the Poet. Uh, what's, what's his stage name now? Is you know, the well-known, the big guy, Phil, Phil Jupiter. Yes, Jupiter's, that's it. Yeah. Whatever Porky the Poet to me, but that was that's who right. I met at Go Discs, you know, and but he was like, Andy McDonald's got to hear this, you know, and so, and sure enough, within it seemed like weeks, I, I was suddenly signed to a, a you know, a good, good indie label. So everyone, it, it all was fine for everybody, um, and it, it continued from there. I just was was able to kind of follow my own musical agenda from from there, and here we are, and still some some form or another. And of course, it was nice to come full circle where Paul and I on his project Starless. He asked me to come in and you know could I do some vocals and a bit of co-writing with them, which is so it's great. All these these years later, after school and all the rest of it, all those hours spent rehearsing, we're, we're still uh, playing, playing, making music together, which is yeah. You know, I guess all the kind of strange rivalries of but the band scene sort of melt away, and it's just about friendships, making records, enjoying it, enjoying the process, trying to achieve something of of value, you know, and and people enjoy. It's interesting because a couple of weeks ago, I did an interview with a guy who was in Pete Murphy's band, and they were called the Hundred Men, a guy called Paul. And he does a lot of, um, bizarrely, he's also a lecturer. He's got two lecturing jobs on, and on student, you know, with his students. But he, he, he still records these kind of projects where he just gets hundreds of musicians, you know, to guest here and guest there. So you do something quite similar, don't you, Paul? Yeah, so I've put two albums out, working on a third one just now. The uh, first one came out in 2016. And uh, after Love and Money Split, I kind of became a producer and engineer and I've worked with, I mean, I've done over 600 albums now, but, uh, <laughs> which is ridiculous. But so I've worked with an awful lot of great Scottish artists, a lot of traditional artists as well, Julie Fowles, Karen Mathis and people like that. And then... I decided Love and Money reformed a number of years ago, and I can't remember exactly when that was. I think it was 2012. 
and we did a few shows. We were meant to do one show, but it went really well. We did quite a few shows. And up to that point, I hadn't really played. From 94 to 2012, I really hadn't been a musician. But doing that, I had to learn again, and it kind of gave me the bug to do something. And I, what I fancied doing was working with artists that I'd worked with before that I really liked and respected, and also trying to approach artists that I loved their stuff but hadn't worked with. Yeah. That was the idea behind it. Uh, uh, and the first person asked was probably Cameron from the Blue Nile, and I was very lucky that he said yes. And, and when Paul agreed to do it, then I think a lot of other musicians didn't feel so, you know, they were quite w warm to the, my approach and, and got involved. Uh, and then actually, funnily enough, on this track, and I, I don't do this very often, but I woke up one morning, I had a kind of a track in my head, and I went into the studio and recorded it. And I was playing it back to my wife, who I don't play a lot of music to, because she doesn't listen to a lot of music. She listens to the the Beatles, McCluskey Brothers, and uh, Crowded House, and now Christina and the Queens, I think. But that's about it. But I was playing on the track, and she said, do you know who you should have asked to sing? I said, no, she said, Chris Thompson. And I hadn't thought of it. And it's just when she said it, it just I was like, yeah, that. And I got in touch with Chris, and then a track called Misty Nights was me. It was really great. And part of the track actually kind of talks about our youth and and friends again mentions the track how the cool and stuff and it was it was quite emotional actually it was cool. well i would imagine i must admit because your story which is a slightly different i'm never you know i haven't done hundreds of these you've you've sort of managed to navigate all those difficult things because because as you could imagine and you probably realize most bands have a five-year narrative they get together this is the 80s especially you know 12 months rehearsing playing john peel gives them the play the john peel session first album good second album bit tricky you know lack of money relationships have hit you know you know like aren't going well if anybody ever tours america they always say oh we came back and split up because it just sort of finished them off but you managed to sort of keep it all roll into the next yeah. project without kind of kind of internalizing it and then sort of getting bitter and twisted yeah well i, I mean i think one of the things for me when the band split up i had two children and it kind of i suppose focused my mind in a sense because i love money i mean we were i was very fortunate i've been fortunate in having a good career and quite a stable financial career in the music industry. But with love and money split up, I knew that I could live for so long, but then I would have to do something. <laughs> and my qualifications really at that point were zero. Uh, I was, was qualified to do nothing. I wasn't even qualified to work in a bar, really, because I hadn't done that. So I thought, well, well what else do I, I, I know and what do I want to do? And as a kid, what I was really interested in was being a producer or an engineer known in the recording studio, I never thought of myself of being as a performer at all. So I went back to that and I kind of fell into that and I got a couple of lucky breaks just working with artists that then, because they were well, well respected, other people came to me. And I really enjoyed that. And also having an electronics background, it kind of ties into that. And I really enjoyed that. And I suppose, to be honest, I didn't really miss the touring aspect of it. In the live performance because I've done it so for so long. Yeah. And it's so the reformation of love and money that kind of 
maybe realised that I did miss that. You know, if I'd never played with love and money again, I would never realise that I missed it. I wouldn't bother. <laughs> so it's ironic in that sense. But I really enjoyed those those few shows we did. Uh, and then we did an album, which maybe I didn't enjoy as much as the live shows. But again, it, it did get me really wanting to, to make records again. So I've been enjoying making records again. But I think, I'm sure Chris will say the same, I think we've done it for so long that what else do you do? You know, it's like, you, you, it just becomes what you do. So even when lecturing at university, it's about music production at a lecture. So again, I'm very, very fortunate that I'm doing something that, that I love to do. So I'm very lucky. Yes. And what, and, and how did the, the narrative of the bathers progress to the, to the bit where you think, oh, I'm not quite sure about this? Um, well, I think we, I did the, again, the luck, I had the first album with the Godess and um, I had the usual, some all the classic record company problems. So it was a case of, as the album was coming out, Andy McDonald, who ran Godess, decided he was going to do a sort of moonlight flit from his licensing deal with Chrysalis to, um, I don't know, he went somewhere else. And my record, bang, fell right into the cracks of that whole thing. So that that was a, it came out, but it just, it just sort of into the void, really. So it was looking a bit dicey again, but I I did have this, I don't know, it's a strange, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a particularly confident person, but I've got some kind of, self-belief confidence there because I took myself back to Palladium with my own cash and I, I started work on the second Bathers album, which turned out to be a Sweet Deceit in the end. And you know, I put something, I don't know, maybe six or eight grand, which was quite, quite a lot. It was basically, that was it, that was all I had. Um, it was making that, was just with this inherent belief that 4ED or someone would put it out. It was a, this is going to be so, such a great record yeah. that we'll worry about that. We're not going to worry about that, but it's, it's so good that it's just, they're going to be clamouring for it. Bizarrely, but that's not really my personality in so many other walks of life. But um, as it got towards the end of that project, I was I got a phone call. If you remember, Lloyd Cole and the commotions had just split up. Yes. So the commotions were looking for a new Lloyd or, you know, Neil, Neil and Stephen from the band were looking for someone to sing or write and sing. So I got this call from their manager and I said, yeah, really, you know, I loved, I loved the, the commotions, the first record particularly. And um, so I ended up meeting Neil and Stephen in London and we, well, yeah, we all got on, did some demos, liked it. And Island Records suddenly got interested. And at that point, I just about finished this Sweet Deceit project. Island wanted to sign us. I said, oh, hang on, that's fantastic. But by the way, just I had the uneasy feeling that suddenly we caught in some horrific contractual thing where they had me tied up, but so they could just say, yeah, yeah, okay, you've got these recordings. Okay, so what? So I made it, I had brought them forward and, and um, luckily for me, the managing director, I'm sure he didn't actually barely listen to the record, but it suited him to say, fine, love it, love it. You know, completely insane. <laughs> it was yeah, okay, where do we sign? How much do you want? We'll buy this record out and release it. So I'd suddenly gone from a kind of slightly di dicey situation to getting my record signed to Island Records, which was, which was a lovely thing to have. 
all all expenses paid and a bit of profit on top before. So you know that that and my luck really sort of held out again, and I went on and did this record with Neil and Stephen, which was you know several months spent in back to Wessex Studios, which is Talk Talk had been working there at that time, which is an album I, I'd adored the yeah. whole kind of spirit eating thing. Um, so again, I got the big, I got the major label experience again with the Bathers on that record. And then one of the big recessions kicked in, we got dropped like with half the other bands. And then I hooked up with three, the, the German label Marina in Hamburg. Yeah, I remember starting that. Out. Yeah, so they, they ended up doing three records with them, which have just been issued on vinyl for the first time this year, last year. Last year, because I can, you know, kind of in the in the sort of uh, back of my mind, I do I do remember the that particular record label and and you know the band yeah. sort of releasing because because at the time there was the Brit pop moment, wasn't there, where crafted songs and and people all yeah. guitars on top of the pops was a yeah. thing. So your your timing at that stage was quite good. Well, arguably, yeah. I mean, there was never any major breakthrough in terms of commercial success or even a a big enough critical success. There's always good reviews, but never in the kind of critical mass to to make the kind of impact of of some of the bands you mentioned that, you know, all household names in indie circles, if you like. So it's been there or thereabouts, but the main thing is being able to do the music and, you know, get get do enough to get by and keep keep on to the next project. But you did work with the amazing Liz Fraser, didn't you? Yeah, for... Liz Fraser, yeah, on the, the second one of those Marina records. I mean, that would have been worth the price of admission alone to, to have that experience. I mean, it's just what a, what a talent. I mean, what, one of my all-time favourite favorite singers, yeah. And, so what was that and like? That was obviously, you know, she oh, was just great. She was, she was absolutely bonkers, but in the most lovely way, and such a talent. And she... It was the, off the back of the first of those German records, uh, Sunpowder, uh, Lagoon Blues. Um, one of the, a good friend of Liz at 4AD, Scottish guy called Colin Wallace, who was, he was the, the warehouse manager, really, done a bit of touring with them as a road manager. Uh, yeah, he really lived it with them. And he phoned me up out of the blue and said, look, you know, I, I, I love this record. I've given it to Liz. Would you be interested if she likes it? She, you know, would you be interested in talking to her about what have you got coming up? I was like, well, bloody hell, yeah, absolutely. So it's just led very in a very easy fashion to, you know, I met her a few times, chatting the phone lots, and she came up to Palladium, which she knew, as Paul said, she'd done a lot of early cocktail stuff in there. So it was a bit of a return home for her. I mean, she was she was in a bit of a tricky place with the cocktails at that time. The the marriage had fallen apart within the band. It was not yeah. an easy situation but she was trying to get herself to come out of that so she really was looking for something to get her teeth into out with the band out with the cocktail set up and yeah it was just it was just an absolute you know privilege to, to have had been there in the studio working with her and uh, yeah it's fantastic and she did come up and do a couple of live gigs as well I'm is, not jealous at all yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know, like so many of these experiences, you kind of wish you could go back and relive it, suck, suck more out of it. You know, it was good enough, but you're thinking, did that really happen? You know, I remember Love Money had a song called "You're Not the Only One" on a third album that I really liked, and I suggested to the record company that we asked Liz Fraser to do it with James on that, and the A&R man said, "No, nah, I think it'd be better with Sam Brown," and that's how much the record company understood what we were doing. 
Yeah. They, they probably because she had that big hit stop, didn't she? In the in the yeah, 80s, yeah. they probably it's, thought, oh yeah, yeah Sam Brown, she'll she'll yeah, sing that. Yeah. But yeah. that's something. That's, that's something what Ainar's like, you know. Whoever's the hot potato at the time, they went to see what they're talking about artistically. Yeah, no, it's been inter- interesting, right? And you know, hopefully there's there's more to come, you know, Paul's well working on stuff. I have almost finished the new Bathers album quite a, a heavily orchestral approach, did lots of sessions with the uh, with the Glasgow String Orchestra. And it, yeah, it's sounding good. So, you know, in these strange times though, you do, you move to the next project, keep going. So what um, yeah, just briefly, how how has lockdown been for you creatively? Uh, highs and lows. I mean, I find I, I'm playing a lot. I mean, I've, I've really, really enjoyed that. It's something, even when I've not been releasing music, I've, I've, I've liked to think I've been I'm quite a reasonably good musician now. And it, I could say after all these years, and uh, I, I find that an absolute, you know, pressure valve. It really has helped a lot, you know, to just be working your music, even if it's just for your own enjoyment and in the moment. I, I spend a lot of time trying to get an hour, an hour or so of piano in and Sometimes that leads to nice ideas, or sometimes just to practice, just to get into that that music headspace. Yeah. Uh, so quite quite fortunate. It's, it's a little. It's missing. Not that I did a huge amount of live stuff. I think the last full live show Paul and I did that was uh, we we kind of combined forces with a some starless material, some some friends again, some bather stuff, which was worked really really well. So it gave us a taste for it. And we were booked to do a few things last year, and of course, yeah, we went by, by the, yeah. I, I think uh, Chris and I did that, and my son was playing guitar, and but I get so nervous at it. I said to both Chris and my wife that yeah. I'd either never do this again, or I had to do far more of it, so I didn't get so nervous. <laughs> so I think we booked between Starless and Chris and I, and all that, I booked maybe eight or nine shows. Of course, none of which happened. <laughs> <laughs> So, yeah. so we'll be back to my I'm never doing this again or I'm just doing yeah. more when I'm all stunts. It's a tricky one. To do. It, was, it was a strange time putting a record out because the second Starless album came out in May last year and I was meant to do a concert for that as well. So that's been a, an unusual experience putting a new record out uh, during the, the COVID-19 pandemic. One, because a lot of people were followed very early on, magazines and all that kind of stuff. So you found a level of the press and so forth changed. So there was a lot of online, far more online press than I maybe got in the first album, but far less in print than I got in the first records. You could really notice swings and changes within that context. I found the second part of the lockdown post Christmas more difficult to to be creative than I did in the first one. The first one, I found it quite easy just to, to get on and work on the album. Being yeah. But I'm writing again, I'm working on the next record. Uh, I've been redesigning my studio over the last couple of weeks, so hopefully next week I'm going to start recording some stuff. This, again. Is, this is good, I know. The, I think the spring coming back is good. So look, last question, which is always a bit tedious, but I quite like it. So if you could have said something to a 16 or 18 year old, you know, like starting out in your creative, you know, journey, 
what would you, you know, if there's something you could have just said to somebody or something you've learned, you think, God, I would just, just give them this bullet point or two, what would it be? Uh-huh. Ooh. Ooh, good question. It's, that's a hard question in a sense because Chris touched on it earlier on when we're saying, you know, some of the responses you make as a young person are knee-jerk reactions. And with hindsight, as Chris and I were saying, you know, if at that time we had had more control or thought about it more, then we would have played the tube and so forth and been more aware. And I think maybe that's the advice, although there's something good in that as being a young person where you just react and you do something. Maybe take time and consider what what you're doing. And maybe people are more considered now than we were then. You know, the music industry is a very different beast now from what it was. When Chris and I started off, no one knew anything about anything. We started and we just did it. Things we, we all forget how basic it was. I mean, recording was an old, think, old cassette thing. Is it? Distortion I, was 50%. I think, I think if I was going to give advice to, to, to musicians and so forth starting out, is you know, just keep up, keep going. Don't let yeah. things, you know, it's I'd like, say it's some, some, some form of try not to stress and try and enjoy it. The kind of balance, it's like when I'm talking about recording the London, the rack sessions, on one hand, it was absolutely amazing. And then there was just this element that was torture, but a lot of that's just self-inflicted. Rather than beating yourself up and sort of worrying about your vocal or your keyboards, you know, just because you're giving your best shot and don't stress too much, don't don't, don't sort of beat yourself up, try and actually enjoy the moment a bit more. You know, you could avoid a lot of, kind of pain and anxiety just by just trying to, if you had that wee crystal ball to say, you know what, some of that stuff you're worrying about or you're not quite enjoying this as fully as you will the memory in 20 <laughs> years time, you know, it, if you could somehow tap into it, but God knows how it could be done. I think it's just part of the deal, you know, you're, you're young and you you want it all now and you, you are going to worry. You don't have anything to measure it against. Yes, this is true. And it is difficult, but you're right about that kind of, you need someone to say, by the way, just enjoy this moment because it will pass and you will go, blimey, yeah. damn, yeah. I should I have smiled a bit more. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But there you go. But at least the, 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 so would you, I mean, just really briefly, because we've got like less, oh God, less than a minute. So it's going to cut. But was, you know, the band Friends Again, is that the most important thing in your life? Was that the most musical, you know, important thing that you look back on? Or were the other projects kind of, Equally as important. Uh, so equally, for, yeah, for Paul. I would, I would say equally as well. I would say Friends yeah. Again is really important because that's where it all began. You know, school kids coming together and having a, the idea of having a band. My God, you know, in early 80s, was a pipe dream. So that's yeah. got a special point of mm. poignancy because of that. But the other projects are equally as important. Yeah. Yes. Well, look, it's all going to go. And look, thank yeah, you ever so much for your time. This has been amazing. Okay. My pleasure. Nice to chat to you. Yes, and I'll send you the links if um, and then you can always put the post them up if you fancy. Yeah, we'll put, we'll put them on Facebook and everything. Thanks yeah. for that. Okay, That's thanks really a lot. Fun. Thanks, David. Nice to meet you. Yeah, David, nice okay. to meet you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. There you go. That's how you say goodbye in the world of showbiz or not. I know, I love those um, in slightly sort of fumbly moments. Right, that's it. 
a big thank you to Chris and Paul again for giving me the time for those or that interview. Uh, friends, again, you can find them here, there and everywhere, probably somewhere. I don't know, just Google it. And if you want to contact me for some nice reason, make it pleasant, please, um, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show and you'll fee- see me there, David Eastall. And also all these shows have been archived and there's a lot of them. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. So, um, yes, any 80s band and a bit of an obsession with David Bowie. I still have more to put up, though. So, um, yes, they're going up all the time. So anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.